Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And you're listening to an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. And today we have Gemma Wadham on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Ice Rivers, a story of glaciers, wilderness, and humanity. And it's just out from Princeton University Press, our friends at Princeton University Press, I should say. Gemma, um, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Absolutely. Um, Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I'm Gemma. I'm a glaciologist. Um, I've been studying glaciers pretty much all of my adult life, I think, uh, from the first glacier I met when I was about 20. And uh, I have a professor of glaciology position at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, and also at University of Bristol in the UK. And I'm the author of Ice Rivers. Yeah. And I have to ask, how did you get interested in glaciers? This is not something that you think, oh, geez, I'll become a glaciologist. Is that the right word, glaciologist? Glaciologist. Yeah, no, that's correct. (laughs) No, I mean, I I don't think I ever did decide (laughs) I want to be a glaciologist. But um, I, I when I was in my teens, I'd read about glaciers in geography textbooks, actually. And I found them absolutely fascinating. These vast rivers of ice like a serpent moving down through the mountains that carved out the valleys and shaped the landscape around them and I just there's something about that that really captured my imagination I think and then I I decided to do a degree actually in geography and I chose my degree course based on how much ice there was in the (laughs) curriculum Uh, yeah, so I ended up going to Cambridge, actually, to, to study a lot of glaciers. And, and then the more I learned about them and the more I kind of actually did on them, uh, the more I wanted to study them further. So I just kept going and followed my heart, I think, in terms of what I felt passionate about, which was glaciers. <laughs> well, that's a heartening story. I mean, I have to say that in my own case, I, I studied Russia for many years. I have nothing to do with Russia. My people aren't Russian. They don't come from Russia. I grew up in a place about as far from Russia as you possibly could imagine. That's what I studied. <laughs> I don't know why, but it captured my imagination, as you say. Um, so, could you tell us why you wrote Ice Rivers and what you were hoping to accomplish with the book? Yeah, I mean, Ice Rivers was a book that I'd never expected to write, actually. And it emerged um, because I had a, well, fairly large health crisis at the end of. 2018 I had emergency brain surgery to remove a a large growth that was probably on track to kill me which I had no idea was there and um, as I was recovering from that I had about six months off work full-time and then took another year to come back properly and I think that period I was really getting back in touch with myself about what I really cared about and I wanted to to do something and I I I started writing Ice Rivers I didn't feel up to writing a you know a very hardcore scientific article like I would have done before and I thought well I've had all these experiences around the world and wouldn't it be fantastic if I can take people to these glaciers and be their eyes and their ears and take them on that journey really and the glaciers aren't something that uh, most people actually experience in their lives and I've been lucky enough to be at quite a number of them actually and I think in 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 writing it it sort of just sort of almost wrote itself but um in writing it what I wanted to accomplish primarily was that was to take people on a journey and to bring glaciers into their front rooms um Mm -hmm. and for them to experience them but also to explain how they work and why they matter to us 
And so my, my primary goal was to fascinate people, uh, you know, kind of the kind of the awe side of things, really, but also to explain why they're changing fast as we warm the climate around them and, and why that matters, how they connected to us uh, as, as human beings on this planet. Well, you've done a wonderful job of it. It's a very readable book and it's full of great, I should say, it's full of great anecdotes because you have been everywhere all over the world with glaciers. And we'll come to that in a moment. I also wanted to say that after reading your book, one of the things I realized is that you may have never seen a glacier, but you've seen what glaciers have done. Almost everybody, at least in North America, has. And I'm thinking of moraines and big yeah. boulders that shouldn't be where they are. Like in New England, they're just all over the place. Like there's this enormous boulder. How did it get there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, North America, a lot of it was beneath a very large ice sheet 20,000 years ago. And it's the same in the UK. You know, I grew up in a landscape that had been sculpted by ice. Right. So, yeah, that's exactly know. right. Yeah. And I was reading your book and I'm like, yeah, that explains why there are these enormous boulders where there shouldn't be enormous yeah. boulders. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. So I, what do you, I really think the best way to approach this is for you to give us a kind of tutorial on glaciers. And I'm going to ask some very simplistic questions about glaciers. And I hope you can tell us the answers to these questions. In fact, I know that you can. So the most obvious one is, what is a glacier, technically speaking? Yeah, well, it's not just a lump of ice, okay? So, <laughs> <laughs> which is a misconception, but so a, a glacier forms normally in the high mountains or at the poles where snow falls and it accumulates year on year and the pressure of, of that snow uh, and slight melting and refreezing of it eventually forms ice and as more of that ice forms it reaches enough thickness that the ice actually deforms under, under its own weight and starts to flow down the mountain um, and actually, that's the really key thing that makes a glacier a glacier is a glacier flows. It doesn't just sit there. It's not like an ice cube you take out of your freezer and pop in your gin and tonic. It's it flows, <laughs> it flows down the mountain and it flows in several different ways, actually. So one way is that the ice crystals deform under pressure. All glaciers flow that way. But also many glaciers have water at their beds, you know, between mm. the, the bottom of the glacier and the rock, and that lubricates the ice and allows it to slip down the mountain as well. And then some glaciers, they erode their bedrocks, the rock beneath them, particularly soft rocks, and they have this layer of, of mud beneath them. And that mud also gets squashed and deformed under the pressure. So the glacier can also ride down the mountain on this kind of uh, conveyor belt of, of deforming mud. So there's, there's three ways glaciers can flow, but the flow thing is really important to a glacier. And I, I mean, I, I guess I called it ice rivers because if right. you look at them from say high up on a mountaintop and you look down at it, it, it looks like a, a river of ice uh, transporting mm -hmm. water, just like a, a river in an ordinary landscape would. Right, to follow up on that, that is the notion that they're not just lumps of ice. There are a lot of things in them, both chemically speaking and I suppose in terms of little animals and beasties. Can you talk first about what gets trapped in these glaciers, chemically speaking? Like there's a lot of stuff in there. There is. I mean, anything that, you know, when snow arrives on a glacier surface, it contains pollutants, it contains bugs that have been floating around the atmosphere. So, and that eventually gets, some of that gets trapped in the ice. But what's really interesting about glaciers is, so 20 years ago, we actually thought they were these sterile wastelands where no life could thrive. 
And what we've discovered is that they actually have um, huge populations of active single-celled microorganisms surviving in the cold in all sorts of weird and wonderful places that are quite challenging for, for life to live. And that those microbes aren't just transported in by the snow and, and become ice. They're, they're actually growing and thriving and living off whatever they can mine from their environment to make to, to allow them to survive. And actually those microbes, the fact that a glacier is as alive as a, a handful of soil as you might pick up in your in your backyard. Um, and that that's really important to how a glacier behaves and also how it connects and communicates with the environments around it. So these microbes beneath the glacier, for example, it's dark, it's cold, there's not much to live off. They, they're actually breaking down the rock uh, and using chemical energy to, to basically grow. And in the process of breaking down the rock, they release nutrients from the rock into the water, which get swept out of the front of the glacier and the rivers. And they're actually fertilizing lakes hmm. and oceans and, and helping life survive in, in other environments. So, you know, the, the life of the glacier is connected to life elsewhere, actually, which it's not just in the glacier. So I, I find that fascinating, the fact that glaciers are, are alive, really. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating as well. And I know that um, every time we've said that we thought we found a sterile environment on the earth, it hasn't been sterile. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's not terribly surprising that there are little beasties living in, in glaciers. So we've talked a little bit about how they form and, and how they move, but I think most people will know that they uh, grow and they retreat periodically. And this is not on a human scale. Well, actually, recently it is on a human scale, but on a geological scale, they do this a lot. Can you talk a little bit about why this happens? Yeah, I mean, glaciers are a mirror of the climate that they sit in, really. And as we know, climate changes. And so for a glacier to grow, it has to you know, receive more snowfall in a year than it loses in, in meltwater coming off its surface or coming off into the ocean in, in icebergs. And, and then a glacier can advance. If, if the opposite happens and it's losing more meltwater, then it's able to kind of build up normally mm -hmm. during winter due to snowfall, that then it retreats. And actually glaciers have varied hugely in extent over the Earth's surface um, over you know, thousands to millions of years as our climate has naturally changed. So you know, the, the sort of last two million years, you've had these cycles of kind of long, cold glacial periods and, and short, warm interglacial periods. Uh, and actually during a glacial, you might have a big ice sheet over part of North America and a big ice sheet over Europe. And actually then, and they, they retreat back during the warm periods. And, and those, those cycles, those natural cycles are, are set by the way in which the, the earth orbits the sun and, and how that affects how much you know, warmth is coming into in, into the earth that then affects the glaciers. But what, what we're entering now is a is a sort of unprecedented period of, of warming in the sense that it's, it's driven by atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations. And once again, the glaciers are, are mimicking what's going on with our climate. Right. So we're we're in these cycles, whether we like it or not, but we've created another. Bump. Yeah. 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 We have. yeah. Yeah. I, I see just I see just what you mean. Um, now, when they, I'm fascinated by this because I live in New England. When they grow in, re in retreat, they carry a lot of stuff with them. How do they yeah. pick that stuff up and drop it? I just, I, I'm having trouble having a picture of this huge boulder getting picked up and moved several hundred, or I don't know, a, a big, a long distance. How does that work? Well, so 
as a glacier slides over its bed or moves over its bed, you've got different parts of the bottom of the glacier that might be frozen and thawed, actually, depending on you know, where you are in the glacier. So some parts of the glacier bed might be melting, but then the, the ice is continually flowing. And then the ice may enter a zone where actually it's, it's, it's not melting there, it's cold. And so the water freezes around your big boulder, it gets picked up into the ice, and then the ice kind of carries it on. If you go to the edge of a glacier, as I've done many times, and I've chainsawed my way into the edges of, <laughs> of quite a number of glaciers to get samples, you'll see that the bottom of a, of a glacier quite commonly is chock-a-block full of dirt and sediment and, and lumps of rock and actually that's called basal ice and that's the dirty stuff that the glacier's picked up and frozen into its underbelly and then moved it along as it as it's flowed so it's, it's quite clever uh, but there's lots of different ways in which glaciers erode and then pick up material but that, that's essentially how it sort of works. Mm -hmm. how, how quickly do these glaciers move that is advance and retreat are there generalities we can make about this? I mean all glaciers are whether they're advancing or retreating are moving forwards because the ice is flowing, right? Yeah. So that's a slight uh, <laughs> So is it meters or is it hundreds yeah. of meters or is it? it yeah, I mean, it, it depends on where you are. So, um, I mean, I, some of the glaciers I've been working on during my career, so from the early 90s until now, uh, particularly little glaciers in Alpine regions, I've seen them retreat uh, a kilometer back mm. over, over that time period. And that's not uncommon in small valley glaciers in the mountains, actually, which are quite sensitive to, to warm, warming climate. So you can see, you know, kilometres of, of retreat of that ice and, and also thinning from, from the surface. So the glacier I did my undergraduate dissertation on in, in the Alps, you know, when I was 20 in the early 90s, uh, that shrunk by a kilometre. But it's also sort of almost lost one of its limbs from the top because it's thin so much. It's become detached from the main body of the glacier. So if you look at this glacier now, it's it's actually quite shocking to see that change in, you know, what is really a quarter of a lifetime of a human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And th they vary greatly in size. Is that correct? There are some very big yes, ones yes. and some small. Yes, exactly. Can you, is there, oh, what, what yes. is the, yeah, what's the variation we're talking about here to speak in statistical terms? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, a small glacier can be something it's only a few kilometers squared in area so you know a kind of a, a sort of small village sized glacier mm -hmm. um you know a lot that our largest glaciers are actually ice sheets and they they cover the the landscape they cover the topography they're these domes big domes of ice and they have these glaciers that protrude out of them at, the, at their margins called outlook glaciers and they're huge. I mean, they're continent-sized, really. Yeah. So, so the scale is is hugely variable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, this is kind of a silly question, but I do want to ask it. Where are these glaciers? I mean, we don't have one here in Massachusetts where I am. At least I don't think we do. Um, but where are they located in the world? Yeah, I mean, they they glaciers to form they need to be in places where there's there's snowfall so there's enough precipitation coming out of the atmosphere to nourish them and they also need to be in places which are cold so that, that snowfall doesn't melt away so actually um our most of our glacier ice is in our ice sheets actually i mean the majority of it is in, in antarctica uh, the two ice sheets in antarctica but you've got 
outside of the two ice sheets, so Greenland and Antarctica, you've got very large expanses of glaciers, particularly across the Himalaya. That's a very large glaciated region. You've also got them in northern Canada, parts of the US, down the Andes. Basically, the high mountain areas outside of the poles where there's enough precipitation, you get glaciers. But I mean, you could go to somewhere like central Siberia, where it's extremely cold and you don't have glaciers because there just isn't enough precipitation. It's, it's too dry for them there. So they, they need both those things. They need the cold and the kind of the wet snowfall coming in to, to you know, to appear. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a good answer. We talked a little bit about microorganisms that live in and around glaciers, but you talk a lot about bears in the book. Um, what kind of larger animals subsist near, on, or around glaciers? Um, well, I mean, bears aren't everywhere, actually, so they're, they're particularly the case in places like Canada and Svalbard and that, that part. We do have bears where I am, but there are yeah. no glaciers. We have not, bears. Pol not, not polar bears, maybe. No, we have brown bears. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't find a lot of large mammals around glaciers, um, glaciers. Um, they need something to eat. Yeah. Um, and so you don't have a lot of, of, of life, but you, you might. I mean, the things I tend to see are uh, in Greenland is the muskox, which were introduced actually um, earlier mm. in, the, in the century. And also you find Arctic hare. You might find quite a bit of bird life, so migratory birds that come in with the, with the summer summer season. Um, reindeer is another one, but this you know you don't find it's not like going to on an African safari. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I get there's that. a lot yeah. less there for for food chains to kind of cope, really. I suppose. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can answer this question, but how much of the Earth's water is locked up? Is that the right expression? Locked up in glaciers like can we is there a percentage that we can we say this percent of water is in glaciers yeah well the, the important um fact there is actually the fresh water that's in glaciers so it's nearly 70 percent of the of the earth's fresh really water wow is it is in glaciers which is a phenomenal amount of fresh water and that's you know fresh water is obviously any water we would be able to drink yeah and i think you know that's that's a lot I, I always find that some staggering i mean of course most of it is in antarctica because antarctica is the, the biggest glacier landmass on the planet but that that's important and it's particularly important in mountain regions because these are places where you know water isn't necessarily always available and it's present in the glaciers and if you go to some of the rivers high up say in high mountain asia like that the indus the indus tributaries sort of 80% of the water in those rivers can be glacial and glacial meltwater and snowmelt. Um, and, and that's, that's, they're really important in kind of providing these lifelines for, for, for life in mountain environments, whether it's people or, or ecosystems that we depend on as well. But the, the fresh water is, the, is a really key thing to, to note. That, that's a lot of water, 70%. That, that is a lot of water. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how you do the research you do, which is fascinating. I've read the book, so I know, but I imagine you have a lot of really cool kit that you get to use to study these things, you know, drills, and you mentioned chainsaws, and I don't know what else. Can you talk a little bit about how you study glaciers? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the part of glaciers that I study is I, I normally work on the meltwaters coming off the glacier uh, mm -hmm. so it might be stuff that's on the surface and normally at the edge of a glacier you have a like a big what we call a portal 
which is where the runoff comes out. And these are like wild, scary rivers, chock-a-blockless sediments. Sometimes you look at one, and you think, oh, I just really don't really want to go anywhere near that. But uh, <laughs> and then, but a lot of what we do actually involves very simple things, which might be taking a sample of that water and filtering out the sediment. So separating that sediment from, from, the, from the water, popping it in a bottle, and then bring it back to our laboratories back home where we're doing quite a lot of sophisticated chemical analysis on what's in the water chemically or what's in the water in terms of the, the microbial life or the ecosystem in there. And then using that to understand the glacier, understanding the influence of that fresh water flow on the oceans, or even whether there's greenhouse gases like methane in it produced by microbes beneath the glacier that could go into the atmosphere, which is a potential warming. So a lot of the kit we take is, is actually quite simple. I mean, you're, you're working in a very challenging environment where you don't have power other than what you can harvest from the sun through solar energy. Um, and so we try to keep things quite simple. I mean, you I have taken more sophisticated chemical analysis kit to the field and it's really difficult to keep it working. Okay. The dust, I mean, the dust is just horrendous. You, mm -hmm. you, you have dust everywhere. It just gets everywhere. So you take something up there and the extreme temperature variations from night to day and then you've got this dust floating around everywhere it's it's quite difficult actually to get anything to work for a sustained period of time yeah i can imagine i can imagine that's true so it's yeah um chemistry is best done in a lab <laughs> that's my impression yeah well you have to be really clean and then avoid yeah. contamination it's so easy to contaminate your samples and uh, so we, yeah. we try to keep things as simple as possible in the field and we spend a lot of time just surviving as much as i can work. imagine yes um i mean and we should say that you took time to do this interview during an actual expedition right you're working now oh yeah i am i'm uh, <laughs> i'm halfway up I'm in northern Norway at the moment, and I've been doing a very long, slow trip from the southern part of Norway, visiting all of Norway's largest ice caps and, and sampling them to understand what's living there and what chemically is in the water and how it might affect, might affect downstream ecosystems. So I'm actually sitting outside, just at the edge of some mountains by uh, Ostinsbren in, in northern Norway, where I'm hoping to go tomorrow. Well, thank you very much for, for interrupting your important scientific work. We appreciate it. Um, also, let's just say it's a miracle that we can do this. I don't know. I'm in Massachusetts and you're in Norway. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so let's get to the topic that I think many people want to hear about, and that is, that is climate change. They're interested in it for good reason. Um, can you help us understand how rapidly climate change is causing glaciers to retreat? Is yeah, there a I mean, simple way to explain this. There may not I be. think, yeah, I mean, how rapidly climate change is causing glaciers to retreat. Well, we know from our observations of how thick these glaciers are from satellites, actually, that they have, you know, accelerated their thinning over the last two decades. So it's not it's not a, a, a gradual change in one direction that the change is accelerating the thinning of both our ice sheets is accelerating and the, the retreat of mountain glaciers is, is accelerating. Um, glaciers, it's really important to be able to measure these changes over decades because glaciers don't necessarily show a big signal from year to year. You, you have to, they're, they're slow, they move slowly and they react to climate change sometimes within a few years, sometimes a little bit longer. And so we, what we've seen over decades is this trend towards an acceleration in their thinning and, and their retreat. And that and, and that goes hand in hand with the climate. I mean, as I was saying earlier, they mirror 
what's going on with the kind of the average climate of that area. Mm -hmm. And is it happening universally? Are they retreating everywhere? Um, I mean, there's there's always the odd one or two that that, that buck the trend, and and sometimes they they just have slightly different things going on, and some some glaciers are more protected than others. So you might have a very small glacier that has these steep side walls and it shades itself, but or it has more snowfall accumulation. But I think that the, the main thing is it's it's widespread and in every glacier region of the world, most of the glaciers are retreating. And that, that's the kind of the main message. Yeah, to, to go back to something you said and become a little bit statistical here, because I think it's important. This is not a linear process. This isn't happening at the same rate. The rate of change is increasing. That is that's right. the rate yeah. of of diminution of the size of these is accelerating. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's a, it's an exponential process. Why is yeah. that? Um, it's partly because of the processes that are involved with glacier shrinkage and partly because um, it takes a while, as I was saying, glaciers don't necessarily react immediately. So it's a kind of a cumulative effect of many, many years of warming. Um, and you get these feedbacks within the system where one change yeah. kind of positively feedbacks on the other so um the environments where glaciers sit are warming also at much faster than the global average in some places so particularly the arctic so if you look at the warming it's also not necessarily linear mm -hmm. so you know the warming is not happening at a constant rate right. so where why should the glacier change happen at a constant rate yeah is there kind of an inflection point where you know if we raise the earth's temperature x degrees then things are going to go downhill for the glaciers really fast or yeah i mean like a tipping point type of yeah thing. like a tipping point yeah yeah i mean a lot of people or a few people have theorized around where the tipping points might be um particularly for our ice sheets because the amount of sea level rise locked up in say for example west antarctica um and there are different views on that uh, some people think we're close to tipping points for the west antarctic ice sheet um i think it's still a little bit unclear because we're entering a situation that we haven't been in before, that we haven't monitored, that we haven't measured. So, you know, we have to model it and we have to do it right. in a way in models that capture all the important processes that, that, you know, do a great job at the moment, but they're not quite there yet. And so uh, I suspect we, we need to act like we are approaching a tipping point is the sensible way to act at this point in time because it's quite possible. Yeah, I, I wanted to pause a little bit about models. Um, most of these models are backfit. That is, you have historical data. And so then you say, well, we can explain why these things happen. And it does explain the historical data. But we don't have any historical data for what's going on right now. No, no, that's that's right. And which is which is why sometimes people um, study the past and past periods of, of natural warming. Um, mm -hmm. So the last interglacial period about 125,000 years ago, where, you know, the average air temperature was maybe a degree warmer than now and and so we we can start to think about okay well what happened then and and, and but it's not the same situation as now right. so it does become a bit challenging i'm not i'm not a modeler i mean i i study microbes so <laughs> yeah yeah i understand <laughs> i understand so then this these glaciers will melt uh, are melting um or retreating as we say and this is going to cause uh what, what is it well let me put it in the simplest possible way what is going to happen to all that water? Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> it, it, exactly. I mean, it, I think what we're seeing is a sort of fairly catastrophic disruption to the global water cycle as a result of glacier change. But yeah, the water has to go somewhere, right? So right. Uh, 
what they're finding, say, in the mountains is sometimes that water gets trapped in lakes and then you get these catastrophic outburst floods. In fact, one of my chapters in my book studies these what are called glacier outburst floods, GLOFs in, in southern Chile, this glacier that's got some of the fastest retreat rates in the world. And so sometimes that can cause a hazard in mountain reason, regions. The, the ultimate destination for, for meltwater coming off glaciers is, is normally the ocean. And so uh, you're, you're talking about uh, rising sea levels, but some of the things that I'm studying are not so much about the physical dimension to those changes, but what about the, the biological dimension to those changes? So what happens is you freshen an ocean to the ecosystems in that ocean. What happens if meltwaters that were previously a source of nutrients, you have more or less of them? How does that impact our food webs? How does that impact our fisheries that we depend upon? So there's all these other dimensions I think to that meltwater and where it goes that are perhaps less well studied but are kind of important because they do provide services to us in oceans and fjords in lakes there's a water quality as well uh, that one of the glaciers I studied in in the Peruvian Andes which is the, the last chapter of Ice Rivers is that the glaciers there they're retreating over these rocks which are very rich in, in metals actually metal sulfides and, right. and actually as those metal sulfides are reacting in the air and, and being washed by the rain, that the rivers, which are meltwater, are becoming very toxic. So they've right. got very high concentrations of heavy metals. They're also highly acidic, about the same acidity as your stomach. So pH uh, three, roughly, is the waters. And so it's not just that it's more meltwater or less meltwater. There's also a big question around, well, what's the quality of that meltwater? Because, you know, we, a lot of people are drinking it. Uh, or it might be sustaining food webs and, and, and things we rely on um, around glaciers, not actually in the glaciers themselves. Yeah, I think this is this question about where the water goes is more intuitive than most people understand, because every, you know, anybody who owns a house, let's say, and many people in North America do understand that the water that comes off your house or off your driveway has to go someplace. And like, for example, if you build, I mean, I know this for a fact, because if you, let's say, own a shopping complex and you want to build a, 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 a large um, parking lot, uh, you've got to work closely with the city to figure out where all that water is going to go, because it's going to be yeah. shed and yeah, it's going to yeah. end up someplace. And you can't just shed yeah. it anywhere because it becomes somebody's problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 And it's, I find it, I find it very interesting. So do we have any fair idea of how much the ocean is going to rise in the next few decades? Are there any good estimates? I'm not asking you to make a bet or anything, but. No, well, the problem there is that how much they rise really depends on how much climate warms, because certainly in terms of glacier change, um, you know, our future emissions pathways, whether we decide to cut very, very drastically in the next few years, or we just kind of rumble along at the current rate, that makes a huge difference to our climate, which makes a huge difference to the glaciers, which actually makes quite a big difference to sea level rise. And as soon as you, you know, if you're not, if, you're, if we're not cutting, we're, you know, we're just letting things roll on as they are, you know, you've got the potential future of the West Antarctic ice sheet, um, threat with a few meters of sea level rise in there so the kind of the worst case fairly improbable predictions for sea level rise could be upwards of a meter by 2100 rather than tens mm. of centimeters and the, so you've got this huge envelope where actually the the uncertainty there it's to some degree is well depends on what we do 
uh, and what we do in terms of future emissions pathways. Yeah, that I, I find I, I find that that answer, which I'm sure is correct, that essentially it's up to us to be both encouraging and discouraging. Uh, <laughs> you yeah, because yeah. I mean. yeah. Um, yeah, we're yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a it's a complicated question as to how we're going to reduce these greenhouse gases. And then, as you mentioned, there are lots of little beasties in these glaciers. They produce methane when they die, and then that all gets released. What happens to that methane? Yeah, oh, well, they're producing it as they're alive. That's what oh, okay. they do. That's their, um, that's their byproduct of how they create energy. Is they, It's a bit like a landfill site. They haven't got mm -hmm. any oxygen. They've got some bit of carbon to live off, and they're producing methane gas. Uh, and then we think that might be trapped beneath ice sheets in a, in a solid form called, called methane clathrate. And we don't know how much. We don't know actually even if it's there, but we know that these glaciers are producing methane. So... Uh, you know, it, there's just a lot of big unknowns around the life. And part of that is because you only knew it was there in the last two decades. We haven't got this right. hundred year history of, of knowing glasses are alive and all the research that's gone into that. So it's kind of a trying to catch up really on the, we know they're alive. Why does it matter? And how yeah. much does it matter? Well, this prompts a thought, an editorial thought on my part. Um, the people who fund Gemma's research should fund it more because we need to answer <laughs> these questions. And if we've only known for two decades, God knows what we're going to discover in the next two decades about this stuff. So yeah, uh, research is surprising. You know, you, you you find new things that come out of nowhere sometimes, and you have, you have to follow them. So, but yeah, we, we there's still a lot of unknowns on the kind of the biological impacts. I think. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to let you get back to work because we've taken up a lot of your time. It's, it's obviously very important work, more important than the work that I'm doing. The, the traditional final question on the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? And usually this means like a next book or something. But can you talk a little bit about exactly what you're doing now? Like what, you're going to later today, you're going to go or tomorrow, you're going to go do this. Oh, right. Well, no, so I am going to write a next book, actually. Okay, and great. I'm, I'm, I've been um, starting some work on that as I've been traveling up uh, and I watch the mountains and the glaciers and I'm thinking about that because um, I do love writing and I'm definitely going to do that again. Um, but what I'm what I'm working on right at the moment as I'm sitting next to a <laughs> next to a glacier in Norway is um yeah I'm trying to answer these questions that we've just been talking about, really, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use glaciers in Norway that can access by not getting on a plane um, with all their huge diversity of bedrock types that sit beneath them and their sizes and I'm trying to use that to develop models for you know how micros might be important around the world and how glaciers interact and, and support downstream ecosystems whether that's lakes and rivers or fjords and fisheries uh, and how and why and how much methane gas they might be producing so all these questions I'm, I'm trying to answer as I'm wandering my way up uh, slowly to the Arctic here. Well, I wish you luck with that. And I have the greatest confidence that you will discover these answers and save us all. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Jenna Wadham today about her book, Ice Rivers, A Story of Glaciers, Wilderness, and Humanity. And it's out from Princeton University Press. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. Gemma, thanks for being on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.